Let's take refuge. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. We are in the midst of the Transmitting the Light session. This is the fourth full talk. Blue Cliff Record Case 86, The Kitchen Pantry and the Main Gate. Master Yunman said to the assembly, everyone has their own light. If you try to see it, it's dark or dim. What is this light? He then answered, the kitchen pantry and the main gate. There's a verse to this koan. Self-illuminating, absolutely bright. Self-illuminating, absolutely bright. It's an open secret. Flowers fall. The tree has no shadow. Who doesn't see when they look? Right where you sit. Yunman says, right where you sit, you are manifesting and transmitting the light. You are utilizing the light of your awareness. You are manifesting your life, sitting there, shining away. What has been illuminated this week? What habits of mind have been revealed in the light of your awareness? Sashin has a way of uncovering our work, our spiritual work, revealing the places that the heart is stuck and giving us insight on how to be present with this life in all its twists and turns, all its textures and nuance. So no matter how we're practicing session, whether we're in the monastery, and you know daily life continues at the monastery, wash up and work practice, living together, or at home, doing work practice, eating, living together. We see we are it become intimate to this life and how it opens and how it closes what it tastes like, what it feels like, what it means to really be embodied, to reclaim our life, as Jogan said yesterday. So perhaps what the resistances are, the org arguments, sometimes I bring in a certain kind of backlog of pain into session or tension or just argument with reality, resistance to reality. And often what I find in sitting in session, I don't need to 
figure out the particular arguments I was having with reality because that wasn't really the issue to begin with, you know, that person or this situation or, but there was something more fundamental that was out of sync, some way that I wasn't seeing clearly a self-inflated ego that got in the way and was creating all the issues. So in Sashin, we're able to weed out the underlying causes of our distress. We can peer into the self-making mechanisms. We can see more clearly how separation happens, how distress takes form in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies. And we can allow ourselves to rest, to rest at the source of it all, as the source of it all, to sit with wonder. I hope you've had moments of true wonder as the whole world comes into being through us, self-illuminating. Each sensation, each appearance, shining forth on its own, displaying and disappearing. This magic show of the great mystery. One can't help but just be in awe sometimes. And to trust, and this is one of my edges, that we really don't need to know what's going on. We really don't need to figure it out. It's kind of impossible, actually. And that it's okay to rest in the awe of being itself even to familiarize ourselves with not knowing and not needing to. Learning to let the Dharma illumine through us. And this is a way of finding our own entrustment to the present, to presence discovering that we truly can trust. And I'll talk about this more a little bit later as I share some stories um, of the woman ancestors. We can empower our life through our attention to transmit the light, to receive the light. Yunman asks, what is this light? And I ask, do you see it in the kitchen pantry when you gather your supplies for the meal? Do you see it coming through the window, through the computer screen? 
shining through your spoons and bowls as you eat, your toothbrush as you brush your teeth? Does the door you open when you walk into the zendo or your home zendo or your front door transmit the light? Does your hand receive the light? All five fingers open, receptive. We empower our living spaces during session, whether you're at home or at the monastery. And this is true for me, and I wonder if it's true for you, as sacred space. And so I noticed this uh, dualistic way I approach non-sashin and sashin during sashin, because suddenly the whole monastery is sacred space, is practice, my room included. And during the week, when it's not session, it's like the zendo is the only sacred space. I forget that the office is sacred space and that the kitchen and that the uh, meals and the outside and the grounds. And this is really just a quality of attention. And I can see that during session, my attention is sunk down deeper and more awake to my life. And so I empower the space that I live in to hold me. And it is sacred. Not just sacred, but alive. And so I hope that you're finding sacred space in your homes, in your home zendo, in your kitchen, in your front yard, in your garden, wherever you're doing work practice. And I hope that you're imprinting this space with your attention and that you can discover it again, even when you're not in session, that the tea kettle and the plates you're using can be now empowered with the quality of your attention and bring you back into life when you forget, when the light gets dim. It's not just sacred, but alive. Toilet paper, bathroom sounds, traffic, neighbors, alive, alive, all of it. Especially that which annoys us. Isn't that interesting? I was just thinking about what it means to be annoyed. It's like one of those just, oh, that's not my life, actually, because it's not going the way I want. I sometimes forget that, this is an interesting thing to say, I sometimes forget that this is the life I'm living. I wonder if anyone else does. And I think that my life is some other life, or it should be some other way. And I like don't want what is being offered in abundance. It's kind of crazy. Like I want better conditions for practice or a more enlightened community or a more enlightened society and like feel trapped by the delusions of others. And I think it's probably all in here. 
But Sashin empowers us to live our life, this life, the conditions of this life, our actual life, this one life. And when we really see, really embody, it's beautiful. And even the pain is beautiful. To really sit inside the body, no matter how it feels, is exhilarating. And of course, that mind, that habit can come in and be like, oh no, not this life, another life, another life. If I just do this, I could get that other life. That doesn't exist, it's a dream. And so one of the aspects of Zen practice, which I'm coming to love more and more, is it brings us into relationship with the apparent mundane, ordinary, daily details of life. And I'll talk more about this again when I introduce Aoyama Roshi, who's the abbess and has been the abbess of the Nisoto, the Zen uh, nun, nunnery in Japan for the past 35 years. A poem goes, flowers fall and the tree has no shadow. I love that line. Jogen Sensei spoke about Keizan Zenji yesterday. Keizan Zenji transmitted the light of the Soto lineage to Mokufu Sonin, which is one of the names we chanted today when we chanted the women's ancestor list. Her name means ordered silence. Ordered silence, an enduring ancestor. The first woman to receive transmission in the Soto lineage historically is quite significant. And open the door, huh? Perhaps maybe for us. Sonin uh, first met Keizan Zenji and she was married. She's married to a wealthy landowner and also had quite a lot of wealth in her family. And she was so deeply imprinted by meeting Keiza Zenji and the Dharma that he embodied, the way he embodied practice, his spirit, that um, she had a significant amount of land donated for the building of the temple Yokoji. And actually the temple Yokoji is her family's house. They took it down, which is an amazing aspect of how they build in Japan, at least how they used to, that you can take apart a building and move it and then rebuild it. Um, and so her family's house became the temple Yokoji, which was one of the temples that Keizan Zenji founded. And she remained a patron and friend for some time to Keizan Zenji, um, frequently 
visiting him and they would have Dharma discourse. She would ask him her spiritual questions. And as Jogen uh, Sensei said yesterday, Kazan had a rich and mystical relationship to his dream life. And his grandmother was a deep inspiration for him in his practice. And one night, long after his grandmother had passed away, she appeared to him in a dream. And the next morning, Sonin stopped by. And when she stopped by, she asked Kazan for ordination. And in Kazan's mind, she represented his grandmother and she felt, he felt this kind of familiar love for her. It said. And so there's a record of their exchange on this day where Kazan said to her, the winter is coming to an end. The spring is arriving. There is an order to this. What is your understanding? And she replied, in the branches of a tree without shade, how can there be any seasons? And Kazan said, what about right now? And she bowed. In the branches of a tree without shade, do you know this tree? the shadeless tree. In Zen koans, we're asked to be the tree, not just know it intellectually. Oh yeah, tree. Got an image of it in my mind. But what does it feel like to embody tree? to be this tree, to feel down into the earth with your roots, extensive, deep, thick, intertwining roots. The tree root systems are so deep, especially an old growth tree. It's like your whole body flipped upside down in, and buried in the ground. Imagine that. And then you're coming up out of that. And feel your trunk, your core as the trunk of the tree, your spine moving up towards the sky as a tall, old growth, noble fir or giant sequoia or redwood or tree of your choice. And senses open the broadness of your limbs, your branches, extending in all directions, 360 degrees, 360 degree awareness. Your view, the view of the sky, unobstructed, spacious. Seeing birds flying by, clouds passing by, the wind moving through your branches. People 
coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. Thoughts coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. How does a tree move in a heavy wind? Do the roots move? Or is there a constant stability and stillness? Does the trunk move? Does the sky, the spacious view move? And what shades the light of this tree? How do you throw shade on the light of awareness, on this spacious view? What causes it to collapse? What dims the light? Self-centered thinking, self-consciousness can be just even a light shade, the edge of what we're aware of, or that creeping sense of somebody watching, somebody meditating. Blanche Hartman says, do this practice for no one's eyes not even your own. Do this practice for no one's eyes, not even your own. We can familiarize ourselves with spaciousness, with peace of mind, with mountain mind or tree mind, tree body. And then watch, especially during this point in session, how the view collapses, how shade, how it gets shaded, how it dulls or dims. One tendency that can happen in session is the concluding mind. And that can look so many different ways, like, Okay, open spacious awareness. Check. Got it. Okay, now let's subtly plan or think or daydream or try to fix all the problems. Or just a subtle boredom, kind of disengaging. Not quite wanting to step fully in to our lives, holding something extra, something out. How do you creatively stay engaged with your practice? How do you live into the mystery of being alive? We can come to certain edges. It's important to do. And then the attention recoils. And what happens right before the recoil? Does an image appear? 
a body sensation. Get curious. Fill out your life with awareness. Bring attention to any perceived edge. Reaffirm aspiration. Reconnect with intention for practice. And we can do this over and over again, renewing and refining. Why do I do this? What matters? What's alive for me in this practice? Not, not in an egoic sense, but just really intimately questioning and knowing our motivation, feeling and letting it guide. To appreciate that there is so much more that we have not yet seen. Dogen Zenji stanza from the Genjo Koan, when the truth fills our body and mind, we realize that something is missing. We awaken to don't know mind. We awaken to mystery. That no word, no measuring stick, no evaluation can come close to touching it. Sheer wonder. How fully are you inhabiting your life? Can you actually say? And yet perhaps you feel a tug of longing. Something's missing is a mantra of total acceptance, including the unknown, the unknowable, the dark side of the moon, the shade of the shadeless tree. Mokufu Sonin became the abbess of Enzu'in opening the way for women to study and practice together to transmit the light of the Dharma together. And this path of women transmitting to women has been opened and closed for long periods of time and then reopened and closed and then reopened and closed. So the women's lineage has gaps and curves and a lot of revolution <laughs> and it's reopened right now so i want to fast forward about a thousand years to present day and share from aoyama roshi the current abbess of the nisoto monastery in japan aoyama roshi is now 85 years old i haven't met her but have met many of her students Actually, the first person I uh, practice Zen with, Diane Banaj, has studied with Ayama Roshi. She wrote this book, um, which is called Zen Seeds, when she was in her 50s, when she was first abbess of uh, Nisoto, 35 years ago. 
Uh, and this was a lifeline for me when I first came to the monastery, just reading the words of another um, empowered woman priest. So I'll share a little bit about her life. This is her talking about her teachers. And she tells a little bit of her own personal story. My two teachers. Master, there are several people that I would like to be allowed to call master. With all love and respect, I feel welling up from the bottom of my heart when I use that word. I have been able to come this far in my life only because I have had so many good teachers and friends, and I owe them a debt of gratitude. So when we hear this, we can reflect also on our own life, and if this is true for us, how many people have come into our life and acted as teacher and inspired and opened certain doors and insights and paths for us. If I had not met a certain person at a certain time, if I had not encountered this person's words at this moment, what kind of life would I be living today? Just to imagine it puts a lump in my throat. But we must remember that even if a great master stands before us expounding the true teaching, if we do not aspire to the way and pay no attention to them, no connection can be made and a teacher-disciple relationship cannot be formed. Whenever I remember that simple truth, I think about the two teachers who, nur who nurtured from the very beginning my aspiration to seek and practice the way on my own. I have had a long and deep connection with Buddhism. From the time I was carried in my mother's womb it, womb, it was planned that I would enter the priesthood. It's kind of amazing. Like, like Jogan was saying, a lot of the ancestors have been raised in this tradition. And um, in this passage, she'll give us a little bit more about what that experience was like as a child. It was very formative. In the spring, when I was five, I entered the temple called Mu Ryoji in Nagano Prefecture, where my aunt, the old Shuzan, presided. I became the disciple of Senshu, the nun next in charge and a cousin to Shuzan. Shuzan took me directly to the Buddha Hall, where she sat me in front of the main Buddha statue while she talked to me. Take a good long look at this Buddha. So she's talking to a five-year-old. Take a good long look at this Buddha. The thumb and forefinger on each hand form a circle, don't they? The statue was Amida Buddha, who is always depicted in this way. No matter where you are, this is back to her teacher, no matter where you are, whether asleep or awake, or even if you completely forget about the Buddha, they are watching over you. If you do this, if you do something naughty when you think no one is looking, the circles made by his fingers will turn into triangles. Young and innocent as I was, I fully believed that. No matter what it was I did, I thought of the face and hands of the statue of Amida Buddha, 
Whenever I did something bad or was lazy or hurt someone's feelings by something I had said, I would worry about whether the circles formed by Amida Buddha's fingers had changed into triangles. (laughs) And then I would crawl onto the dark altar to take a look. And his face was always smiling. His fingers joined in circles. The words always watching over you are full of trust and promise. No matter how hard I tried, there were times when I was misunderstood, reproached. I felt hemmed in on all sides. It was at these times that I felt, the, I felt embraced by the warmth emanating from Amida Buddha's hands and did not feel alone. The words always watching over you are also rather awesome. Whenever I was carried away by the praises of people around me, it would suddenly come to me that Amida Buddha's fingers might be forming triangles. My wish that was no matter how I appeared in the eyes of worldly people, I wanted to live my life in a way that Amida Buddha always approved of. But although I often failed in that, I always found peace of mind in thinking that Amida Buddha embraced me as I was. That's an important teaching that she got. I always found peace of mind in thinking that Amida Buddha embraced me as I was. As a child, I learned the importance of living in accord with the Buddha's way of measuring things. I I also learned that a, a life interwoven with joy, anger, sadness, and pleasure by happiness and unhappiness is itself in the very palm of the Buddha's hand. I was able to receive these two teachings in the very first stage of my life, and I feel that the years since have been spent confirming those teachings through practice. Mm. And just again, a recollection on how we're impressioned as children. And and there's so many stories, I mean, even from the Buddha's own story of remembering an experience as a child. The Buddha had this remembering of sitting under a rose apple tree watching um, someone plowing the fields and feeling and remembering the feeling of being content. And that inspired him to sit under the Bodhi tree through until he awakened to to resolve to awaken it's we're, we are i think all imprinted from childhood in these ways of remembering a certain truth and what truth was she remembering that that there's love that we're always embraced that we're always supported that's how we would say it now can't fall out of the Buddha's hand, Hogan Roshi often says, well, you can't fall out of the universe. And just like that level of trust instilled in this heart of a child is a trust that we can practice and affirm for ourselves, even if we weren't imprinted in the same way. So I'm going to continue with a little bit more of her story from childhood. From the day I first passed through the temple gate, I began to memorize the short short sutras, such as the adoration of the relics of Shakyamuni Buddha and the Heart of Wisdom Sutra. 
By the time I graduated from junior high school, I had learned almost all of the sutras that were taught at the training temples. Shuzan, while she was a really warm person, was also quite strict. For 365 days of the year, she never permitted me to sleep late. We got up while it was still pitch dark outside to hold morning surface for one hour. In the dead of the winter, the temperature was no more than minus 15 degrees Celsius in the Buddha hall of our mountain temple, and my small hands were completely numb as I beat the wooden block in accompaniment to the sutra recitation with all my might. There was a set time each evening when I was taught the sutras. No matter how cold it was, I had to leave the vicinity of the heater, bow with my hands placed neatly before me on the floor, and say, please teach me. Shuzan also left her warm place, and sitting formally on her knees, she pointed to the Chinese characters with a stick and read them to me one by one. At such times, Senshu, her other teacher, would be doing needlework beside us. After the sutra reading lessons, Senshu would often recall stories of the Zen masters. When I was in primary school on the holidays, I was allowed exactly an hour for play after lunch. One time, when I was playing outside, I lost track of time and returned an hour late. Shuzan poured a bucket of water over my head and scolded me. <laughs> Later, when I was in high school, I was not given any free time for study. The only time I had for study, even during final exams, was either during the four-mile walk to and from school or when I should have been sleeping. I was told, when people are told to study, they lose the desire to study. If they don't think they have time for study, they instead struggle to create it. Then they can really use what time they have very efficiently. The hard work I had to do never made me cry, but I sometimes said cheer shed tears over not having time for study. When picking weeds in the garden or mulberry leaves to feed the silkworms, even when I was in the bathroom, I secretly reviewed my English vocabulary flashcards. The challenge was to fit it in as much as possible in the 24 hours of a day. That way of life became the foundation for the way I live now. This, um, this in particular is inspiring. I'll share some more about uh, the Nisoto, but they often talk about the Nis Nisoto or nuns training temple as being more challenging than the, um, you know, the male temples um, because they have much more activities that they have to do, like tea ceremony and a lot of different kinds of work practice. And um, the big lesson from people I know who have studied there and I'll read from another book of a woman who trained there for three years, is that you have to do zazen all the time because there isn't as much formal zen, zazen time just sitting. So you have, to, you have to see everything as zazen and that's the teaching and they really mean that. It's, and you kind of can see like fitting in her study in the, in the in-between times, like, like no gap, every moment is precious and use it completely. I was ordained in the spring of my 16th year, filled with the dream of walking the supreme path. After my years of tra training at Ichi Semman Nisoto, so she trained at the Nisoto, I went to attend the school affiliated with the Soto sect. 
For 15 years, until the summer of my 30th year, my two teachers were undemanding and gave me time, allowing me to enjoy myself in college. Impelled by my youthful purity, an uncompromising will, and impatience, I searched for the way but was too quickly disappointed. I I searched again and despaired. Every time I despaired, I lamented the corruption I saw in Buddhist organizations and denounced the Buddhist clergy. My two teachers, Shuzan and Senshu, took me severely to task. Just how great a person do you think you are? Everybody has some good points. If you don't have the modesty of heart to be able to learn from any and everyone, what are you going to do? Even now, these words echo in my ears. The 15 years of my youth spent in vainly seeking the way had been like following an endlessly curving mountain path. In spite of that, I finally made my path. With a new sense of admiration for the profundity and splendor of the way, I was able to return to our mountain temple in search of spiritual growth. And I'll share another one of her teachings. This is called Hearing the Winds in, Wind in the Pines. She's talking about visiting um, a friend, Yokoyama, in his home. And he's quoting, When I said to a child, I can make a whistle out of a blade of grass, the child asked, can you make a whistle out of a pine needle? But it, wa- but it is the wind that makes the pines sing, you know? And now this is back to her. The voice of the wind in the pines is the most beautiful sound there is. The wind should make pine needles sing instead of me. Either the wind or I can do it. When the wind roars, it is the universe that makes it roar. Whether a voice is loud or soft, it is the voice of the universe. Even silence has a voice, and a mountain has its own particular mountain voice. Now Zen master Yokoyama is dead, and the trees and grasses at his home and the wind in the universe are probably blowing whistles in his place. But I wonder if a visitor could hear in those whistles the voice of the universe, the voice of the Buddha. The wind goes its own way and is is without form. We know it is there when we hear it in the grass or trees, see the clouds scudding overhead or feel it blow against us. It's been quite windy here. I don't know if it's been windy where you're living or if you can hear the wind in our trees, but it's been a beautiful blessing this session. I always feel affinity with the wind and love when we have a session that's a little stormy. She goes on. Whenever I feel so arrogant as to think that I have the, f- the power to give myself life, I think of this poem by a five-year-old child. The moment I say, tongue, speak, my tongue has moved. When I told my tongue to speak, what moved it? 
The power that moves my tongue before I do is a power that works without rest. When I sleep and make, sorry. The power that moves my tongue before I do is a power that works without rest. When I sleep and moves without rest when I sleep and makes a flower bloom or a horse neigh. Whether we know it or not, the Buddha holds us in the palm of his hand, and he is the power that gives us life. To symbolize and revere that power, people have given artistic form to what originally was without name or form, by carving images of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in human form. In the way a child sometimes needs to call its mother, we call on Amida Buddha or Kanan Bodhisattva, then everything is revealed as Amida or as a transformation of Kanan. One hot summer day on Mount Maku in China, Zen master Pao Che sat fanning himself. Might sound familiar. A young Zen monk approached him and said, the nature of wind is everywhere. There is no place it is not. Why do you use a fan? The master answered, although you know that the nature of wind is everywhere, you do not yet know that the nature of there being no place it is not. The young monk asked, then what is the nature of there being no place it is not? The, the Zen master just sat fanning herself in silence. Silently fanning oneself is a valuable practice. However well we understand that we manifest the life of the Buddha, we cannot realize our full potential unless we practice the Buddha's teachings. Still, the life of the Buddha is manifested in us regardless of whether we understand or are aware of it or practice the Buddha's teachings. It is manifested in us as we go about our daily lives. For instance, when we conserve water or plant life or tackle our household chores wholeheartedly, whether a dewdrop is on a flower or on a heap of dung, the morning light sparkles on it just the same. What a joy it is to know that our finite lives, lives are part of the infinite life of the Buddha. One of Aoyama Roshi's American students, uh, Tenku Ruff, who studied here, um, and is the president of the SCBA. She was talking about Aoyama Roshi as someone who embodied dignity, grace, presence, and strength. And that when she is walking by, there's this sense of just equanimity and peace and a kind of strict person. And then the next moment she could just be full belly laughing and there's that quality we see in many Zen practitioners of being able to turn on a dime and just like fully this moment, fully this moment. Um, I wanna share another story. This is just about practice at the Nisoto and it's about the practice of water. And I found this really moving uh, and I think it speaks a lot to uh, monastic practice and the way, and not just monastic practice, but the Zen tradition and the Zen tradition of caring for each and every single 
aspect of our life as the life of the awakening, the life of Buddha. The first, this is from um, Genshin Claire Greenwood, who I met when I was in Japan, actually. And she studied at the Nisoto for three years with Aoyama Roshi. The first thing we learned about at Nisoto was water. In the sleep-dazed morning rush, when people were, were scolding us not, about not covering our mouths when we brushed our teeth, there was also a teaching about water. We learned just how much water to pour into a washing ba basin to wash our face, and we learned how to press the nozzle of the faucet up against the lip of the basin as we poured water out so it didn't make a loud splashing sound. We learned how to rinse our toothbrush in a cup of water to not waste, and we learned how much water to use when washing the floor. We learned to pour used water onto plants outside. After paying attention to the quantity of water over and over again, we came to see that water is very precious and that our seemingly tiny everyday actions are actually very important. We came to see that there is no other place to practice than in this very moment, in this action, with this drop of water and this cleaning rag. We also came to see how little human beings actually need to survive. The leader of the work group to which I was assigned was named Ejo-san. This was the woman who had wiped my feet with a towel when I first arrived. She was a former dancer and she was very intense and strict. I remember one day I hung the hand towel crookedly on the drying rack. She tore them down in a rage, pointed at the drying rack and screamed, this is Zazen. This is Zazen. The last I'll share from Aoyama Roshi. She said, this is in a Dharma talk. She said, when humans are hungry, we don't need to be told to eat. But to nourish our heart and mind, we need to practice. And we need to continue practicing forever to satisfy this hunger. But we have to do it without the expectation of enlightenment. Practice and enlightenment are connected in the same way as the body and the mind, in the same way as our foot is connected to our leg. One leads and the other follows. Washing the bowl is stepping the front foot forward, continuing without hope or expectation of understanding, and then understanding follows, like our legs, when we walk. Over the years at Nisoto, the most common thing Aoyama Roshi emphasized to me, and this is Geshin talking, was the pra that practice takes time. She often spoke about the arrogance of youth, a prideful way of relating to the world, wanting results quickly and easy. In all fairness, I'm sure that as an 83-year-old Zen master, she had a very different way of viewing the world than I did as a 25-year-old beginner. Yet despite her age, seniority, and realization, she always emphasized that she was just a beginner who was continually learning and discovering new things and that all the great masters of the past were beginners. The Buddha way is endless. 
she was fond of saying in Dharma talks. So we cannot say that there is one point in time that we, as finite relative beings, understand the entirety of Buddha Dharma. I remember one time I went to her room and started crying about what I was doing in Japan. She scribbled down on a piece of scrap paper, don't rush, don't give up, don't be lazy. Even Dogen Zenji took 14 years. Well, thank you for um, celebrating the life of Aoyama Roshi. I wish there was more I could know about her past, and I'm sure there is. I just couldn't find a lot about her years as abbess and what that's been like for her. But I like, step away from those teachings just with this imprint of the preciousness of this life. And the, the teachings of the Soto Zen school and monastic practice of really bringing us into intimacy. And whether you're doing sashin here at home, you're embodying the forms of this tradition that's pointing us to the intimacy and preciousness of our life. And it doesn't need to take a particular form. You know, this particular woman grew up as a Buddhist and has that outlook and that karma to be a Roshi. And we have our own particular karma, but Zen practice allows us to fully inhabit that karma and live it out and, and know from the inside the, the intimacy and beauty of simply being alive and this entrustment to presence. And then all we can do is appreciate our life. So this talk is just an encouragement to pay attention. Attention is, attention is an act of love. And it gives life to our life. We are sitting at the edge of the whole universe. The whole universe is manifesting through us. Wow. Self-illuminating, absolutely bright. It is an open secret. Flowers fall, the tree has no shadow. Who doesn't see when they look? Thank you.